We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. the Socialist Program. I'm Nicole Roussel, a producer of the show. Brian, the host of the Socialist Program, is on his way to a conference in Brazil with the Landless Workers Movement, the MST. He's coming back on the 31st of August, and we are excited to announce a seminar with Brian for that day, the 31st at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. So if you're already supporting us with $5 a month or more, please go to Patreon to register to join us on the 31st. If you're not yet supporting the show, but you enjoy the show or you rely on it for news and analysis, for information, for perspective, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the socialist program and sign up for $5 a month, $10 a month, 20 or more to do your part and keep the show going. And once you've done that, to register for the seminar, the link will be right on the main page. And then supporters, patrons, our beloved community, please send us questions for Brian through the Patreon account. You can just message us and we'll try to get through as many questions as we can. Brian does his best to get to everyone and we normally do a pretty good job. So again, this is for the 31st at noon Eastern time, 9 a.m. Pacific. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I work at both noon and at nine, don't worry at all. You can send your questions to us. We will still get to them. And then we'll produce a mixed and mastered, great audio quality version of the show, a podcast, and we'll put that out for patrons only. So you can still hear everything and still get your questions answered. Now, today, we're going to share with you an incredible interview that Brian did with Rania Kalik's show, Dispatches, which if you don't already listen to or watch, you definitely should be doing. It's called Rania Kalik Dispatches, and you can watch it on youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. You can also listen to the podcast if you just look for Rania Kalik Dispatches on any podcast app. This is a particularly exciting episode. Brian and, and Rania sat down together. It's kind of a crossover episode. And they talked about and discussed the impact of the severe repression over the past decades on the socialist, communist, and black liberation movement in the United States. So without further ado, here is Rania and Brian. The U.S. left is often smeared and mocked, accused of being weak, ineffective, unserious, fractured, obsessed with identity issues, and prone to destructive infighting. That's, of course, when it's not being portrayed as a dangerous fifth column that hates America and freedom. While capitalist media has a stake in portraying the left as a disaster, it is true that the organized U.S. left is weaker today than in the past, and that's no accident. There's a history of state violence and repression of the left that includes everything from censorship, arrests, infiltration, and co-optation to assassination of its leaders. Today, there are elite forces who continue that tradition, trying to smear, suppress, or co-opt the left, anything to prevent the masses from organizing behind ideas and actions that can actually challenge our dystopian planet-killing order. Here to discuss the history of repression against the U.S. left and how it relates to the challenges that we face today, I'm joined by Brian Becker, 
host of The Socialist Program, which you can watch every Wednesday right here on Breakthrough News. Brian, welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you on to have this conversation in particular with you because you know the left is always being mocked and smeared and is even you know very self-critical about how powerless it often feels but of course there's very little understanding about just how much the left in America has been attacked in very vicious ways, you know, and everyone's always obsessing. I think you made this point once that everyone's always obsessing over cancel culture. Well, you know, I don't know how, there's probably very few political forces in America that have been targeted for cancellation as much as the left has. And so, you know, you, we talked about this before that there have been waves of repression against the American left, which have contributed to its weakness today. And so for the sake of time, Let's start with a moment in history when I guess the international left gained power in a way that scared the capitalist countries. And that's, of course, after the 1917 Russian Revolution. And you were actually mentioning me that the best place to start specifically is the Palmer Raids. So let's begin there. Can you walk us through what were the Palmer Raids, what happened, and why is it such a big deal? Sure. So the Russian Revolution basically helps Russia exit World War I. And as you know, and as I, I hope our audience knows, even though they would never have learned it in school if they went to school here, anti-war opposition didn't exist only in Russia to World War I. It existed everywhere. Eugene Debs, who was the leader of the Socialist Party, who ran for president four times as the Socialist Party candidate. And the Socialist Party was a big party. I mean, there were more than 100 socialist newspapers, many of them daily newspapers, in 1910. So World War I starts in 1914. The United States tries to enter the war, begins preparations to enter the war in 1916. Eugene Debs makes a speech against the war, U.S. entrance into the war, and he is sentenced to 10 years at hard labor for an anti-war speech. As a matter of fact, in 1920, he ran for president from his jail cell, and he got more than a million votes when, of course, the electorate was much smaller. This anti-war sentiment was everywhere, but it was never stronger than it was in Russia in 1916, 1917, because three million Russians died in World War I fighting on behalf of the Tsar, fighting on behalf of the motherland. And, and so the Russian Revolution happens in February 1917, and the new provisional government, the revolutionary government in Russia doesn't leave the war, even though that was the reason that the masses rose up to overthrow the czar. And the reason was because Russia was in a military alliance with Britain, France, and at that time, the United States, or as the United States is entering the war. So there's a second revolution in Russia. That's the October Revolution, which actually happened in November, November 7th, 1917. And the Bolsheviks come to power and end Russia's participation in the war. And this is an example to the world how to end war, have a revolution. And the ideas of Bolshevism, the ideas espoused by Lenin, communist ideas, the ideas that, of course, Lenin was a student of Marx and Engels, they start to spread all over the world because of the success in Russia. And at that time, the United States carries out not only the imprisonment of Eugene Debs, but the Palmer raids led by a young J. Edgar Hoover in 1918-1919, and thousands of people are arrested, thousands, many, many thousands are arrested, not because they've done something, but because of what they think, because they are in fact socialists. 
They are either Marxists or anarchists or both. There was a lot of spillover between Marxism and socialism and anarchism at that time. And 5,000 people are deported from the United States, just rounded up, put on a ship and sent back to Europe because the government identified them as socialists. And it seemed like a crushing blow to the socialist movement at that time. In a way it was, but the Communist Party and the Socialist Party and several early iterations of what became the Black Liberation Movement start to take shape in the early 1920s under this circumstance or condition of basic illegality. In other words, the party, the communists and the socialists were largely driven underground because of the Palmer raids. And as a consequence, the 1920s are pretty slow going for the US left. But then the Great Wall Street crash happens in October 1929. And suddenly, as the stock market went down, the interest of Marxism went up. And the communists start to gain new adherents. They start to recruit the unemployed. They build councils of the unemployed as people like here in New York City, where I am, where Con Ed is, you know, was taking people off of electricity. People didn't have light or heat. The communists led unemployment councils were going in and turning people's electricity on. They were putting the homeless back into their homes. They were stopping evictions. They were starting to organize low paid workers. And the communist movement starts to take off again. And in 1929, the Communist Party was about 10,000 members. Within a decade, it had become 100,000 members, maybe a little less, but not much less, about 100,000 members. And then in the beginning of World War II, the United States and the Soviet Union form a military alliance along with Britain to fight against the common foe, fascist Germany. And the Communist Party has this moment of sort of relaxation, the anti-communist hysteria that was so dominant starting with the Palmer raids, it starts to ease a little bit. And the Communist Party starts to really grow and grow and grow under the circumstances where people are not facing the end of their careers or going to jail simply for being Marxist. And that was the situation by the end of World War II, Rania, where the Communist Party was about 100,000 members very strong, perhaps one third of the unions in the United States were either under the leadership of the Communist Party or Communist Party members, or they had very, very strong factions. But that's when you talk about cancel culture, that's when socialism is then canceled when the US launches the the so-called Cold War at the very end of World War II. And within a decade, the Communist Party shrinks from 100,000 to less than 5,000, and all the Communist Party leaders in the United States are put into prison as a consequence of the Smith Act trials, which I think we should talk about because of this fierce repression that begins again in 1947 and 48, but starts to reach a climax in 1949 and 1950. And then at that same moment that the communists are being persecuted and prosecuted, in the United States and the leaders of the communist movement going to jail for being Marxist, the Korean War starts. And also six months before the start of the Korean War, which is June 1950, is the victory of the communists in China. Mao Zedong comes to power and the Communist Party takes power October 1st, 1949. So there's this convergence of fierce anti-communism at home and the rise of socialist revolution in Asia which intensifies the Cold War 
And that really leads to basically the extinguishing of the U.S. left in the next few years. And let's talk about what that extinguishing looked like. Very, very briefly, I'm curious because, you know, as a product of American public education myself, you know, we learn about the New Deal, right? I just want to step back for a moment. We learn about the New Deal and that FDR was totally responsible for the New Deal. And obviously FDR played a huge role in the New Deal. But at that point where you mentioned that the Communist Party is like massive, you say 100,000 members, and the role they played in organizing within unions and educating people. I'm curious what the role of this particular left was in helping propel the New Deal, because we don't really learn about that in American school. Well, the New Deal would not have happened without the communist and socialist movement in the United States, because FDR was basically opposed by most of the American bourgeoisie. And he's from the bourgeoisie. Roosevelt was not like just a politician. He's from the ruling class. The Roosevelt's were, was a ruling class family. But, and as a consequence, he's like a paramount figure within the American establishment. And he's basically telling the U.S. capitalists, look, I'm not trying to help communism. I'm trying to save capitalism by introducing reforms so that we don't get overthrown by the communists. And the reason that Roosevelt was making the argument was the communist movement was getting so strong. And by 1934, in the United States, there were general strikes in Toledo, Ohio, Minneapolis, Minnesota, San Francisco. The labor movement was shutting down. There was a thousand sit-down strikes led by communists in auto, in steel, in rubber. The sit-down strikes where instead of leaving the factory, the workers seized the factory. A thousand factories were, were occupied by workers demanding unions. The CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations was formed. They were demanding unemployment insurance. There was no unemployment insurance in America, none. If you were laid off, you starved to death. By 1933, 5,000 people starved to death in the United States because there were, unless you got charity from a church or something and you were laid off, you had nothing. One out of every four workers was unemployed. And so this amazing radicalization takes place. The birth of the CIO, the organization of the civil rights movement in the South, which was really done by the Communist Party and by the CIO in Alabama, in Mississippi, in Georgia. Later, the, it's the black clergy leads the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. But that's because the communists have been basically extinguished in the 50s during the uprising of, for civil rights. So there's this amazing radicalization. So the communists are moving everywhere. They're strong. They have 100,000 members. Even though 100,000 is relatively small in a big society, they had millions of sympathizers, people who didn't want to take the step to join the party, but basically wanted the party to succeed. The leading lights in Hollywood were socialists and communists. Matter of fact, the Hollywood 10 and the trials that come in 1947, after when the witch hunt starts, they start in, in Hollywood because the intellectual, cultural sort of direction of, and movement of the United States was in the direction of the left. This was not only a struggle for economic rights, it was a struggle for the cultural redefinition of America. There was no such thing as integrated organizations in the United States. The communists were the first organization where black and white people could actually be together and were encouraged to be together. In the United States, in New York City, New York, 
the interpretation of the Civil War up until the mid-1930s was taught from the point of view of the, of the defeated slaveocracy. It was the Southern version of the Civil War that was taught to public school kids in New York, but the communists led the teachers union. And the teachers union not only was fighting for teachers getting better wages or better schools, they demanded a truthful telling of history. You know, like this, we're going through this new round of attacks on so-called critical race theory. Well, the dominant slaveocracy's view of American history was the dominant view, including in Northern schools, including in New York City, until the communists led the struggle to teach history properly. So in all of these different dimensions of life, the left really flowers in the 1930s. And so Roosevelt is able to get through the Social Security Act of 1935 and the Wagner Act. Now the Social Security Act was the architecture, the framework for the creation of unemployment benefits for the laid off. And it was also for Social Security. So instead of starving to death when you were too old to be exploited by a capitalist, you actually could retire with something. And then the Wagner Act gave workers for the first time in American history the right to form unions, and they did form unions, and 30% of the working class was in unions at that time, or shortly thereafter, and as a consequence, living standards went up. So the left, all of the New Deal progress was associated not really with bourgeois liberalism, which of course is a factor, but the more dominant strain of revolutionary leftism that allowed bourgeois liberalism to finally thrive in the 1930s. Yeah, and just to note, I mean, the level of impact on like sort of culture that you mentioned that the left communist socialists had. I mean, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently even Marilyn Monroe oh. was like a socialist sympathizer, if not a socialist herself. Thanks, Sinatra. Right, which is like, these are famous people that we never, we never learn this about these famous people. But that said, then you get to what you were talking about, which is post-World War II, the U.S. enters this like Cold War era hysteria where you've got McCarthyism, you've got the execution of the Rosenbergs that you mentioned, you've got these like trials, you've got, you know, Cointel Pro. I mean, it just gets worse and worse and worse for the left. So why don't you walk us through that? Like before, and then you also had mentioned to me like the Korean War, how the Korean War had all of this opposition to it. But that, of course, has been forgotten. So walk us through some of like the most insane, like hysterical attacks on the American left throughout the 50s and, you know, the consequences of that in the following decades. Right. So let's start with the Smith Act trial in 1949. So 12 members of the Communist Party are put on trial because of their beliefs. Because they are communists, they were arrested for espousing the violent overthrow of the government. The only problem for the prosecution was none of them advocated the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. So what they did instead was that the prosecution, they took the writings of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in the Communist Manifesto and in other early writings in the mid-19th century, where Marx makes the point as a historian that the old gives way to the new through force, and that this is the historical circumstance, that old ruling classes don't give up their power and privilege voluntarily, that it requires force or violence or an armed struggle, that this is the path of revolution. And they quote the texts of Marx and Engels from 100 years earlier, and they actually convict them for espousing the violent overthrow of the government, even though there's no evidence that they ever were arguing for that. 
and because they were members of the Communist Party. So 12 of them are sent to prison for five years. Uh, ben Davis, who is a black African-American city council member and a Communist Party leader in New York City, he's sentenced as a city council member for the violent overthrow of the US government under the Smith Act. He's in prison for five years. Now, some of those people stayed in prison a lot longer than five years. Gus Hall was in prison for eight years, for instance. Gus Hall, who later became the general secretary of the Communist Party. Henry Winston, who later became the Communist Party chairman and who was a leading African-American freedom fighter and Marxist, he lost his eyesight in prison because they refused to treat him for a brain tumor. In addition to the 12 who were put on trial, there were another 100 Communist Party officials who were also put on Smith Act trials, and they were also put in prison. Thousands of communists fled the country because they felt they would be next. The war in Korea was extremely unpopular. Truman left office with an approval rating of about 23 or 24 percent. And the Korean War is often talked about as the forgotten war, unlike the Vietnam War, which everybody remembers. The reason that we remember the Vietnam War and have forgotten the Korean War is that there was a vibrant, robust, massive anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. But in the Korean War, that movement was basically extinguished because of the anti-communist witch hunt. So not only were the leading socialists going to prison, but if you said, if you signed a petition saying, end the war in Korea, and the petition was initiated by the US Peace Council or the World Peace Council, then you could be hauled before the House of Un-American Activities Committee and said, aren't you supporting the work of the US Peace Council? And isn't that a front for Moscow and world communism? And, and by the way, if you want this to stop, could you tell me the names of the people who gave you that petition? And do you know anybody else in your family or in your neighborhood or in your job who might have signed that petition? And as a consequence, people started naming names. The American Civil Liberties Union, by the way, expelled all communists from the American Civil Liberties Union. So, you know, this is how widespread the hysteria was, that even the groups that said they were cared about civil liberties were eager to violate the civil liberties and rights of communists and Marxists. So then you have the Rosenbergs, who the U.S. said gave the Soviet Union the secret to the atomic bomb, apparently on the back of a matchbox. It's an easy secret. You just got to put it on the back of a matchbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get the little instructions. You write it down on the back of a matchbox. Simple as that. Yeah. And now, and so when they were sentenced to death, and Judge Kaufman, who sentenced them to death, said, "You are responsible for the fifty-eight thousand Americans who have died in Korea, because there's no way Stalin and Mao would have carried out this aggression in Korea if they didn't have the atomic bomb, which they got from you." And so you're responsible for all those American deaths. And, they, and he sentenced the two of them to death. And they were executed. They were electrocuted. And they had two young kids. And it sent a message because they had been on picket lines protesting against the Korean War. So if you think that your protest against the war in Korea is going to mean you're going to go to jail or you're going to lose your job or you're going to have to flee the country or, you know, God forbid you're going to be arrested and possibly sentenced to prison or possibly sentenced to death. It has a chilling effect. And so you see what happened is the rise of the left is so interesting what happens next, because the left does rise again. It rises right almost right after the execution of the Rosenbergs, but it doesn't rise as the left 
and it doesn't rise where you would expect the left to rise. It rises in the South. It rises in Montgomery, Alabama. It rises when Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat to a white man and she's arrested and a bus boycott is started for one day and to the shock of everybody. For one day, people in Montgomery said, we're not gonna take the bus, we're gonna protest this arrest of Rosa Parks. We wanna desegregate public transportation. And after one day, the leaders like Martin Luther King and others, he was 26 years old at that time in Montgomery, he called everybody together in the church that night after a successful one day boycott. And they said, it's great, we did it. We're gonna do it again sometime. And the, the people said, no, let's do it again tomorrow. And the leaders were like, well, no, like if we, ha we had a success today, if we do it a second day and it's not successful because it's hard to get everybody to agree not to ride the bus when that's your only means of transportation to work, we can't all walk every day. People said, no, let's do it, let's do it. And then the second day turned into the third day. And by the end of the week, the energy of the masses of black Americans in the most repressed part of the country in Alabama, had taken hold. And so this new movement starts, the civil rights movement, but all of the formidable leaders of the civil rights movement prior to that time, like Paul Robeson, like Ben Davis, there's a list of a hundred we could go through. They're all leftists and Marxists and they, they're sort of on the sidelines. They're either sort of, you know, Paul Robeson is before the House of Un-American Activities. They've taken his passport. They've ruined his career. Ben Davis has been in, put into prison. I mean, so in the absence of the organized left, the communist left, the socialist left, there has to be leadership. And the leadership is basically assumed by the Southern-based civil rights movement by the black clergy, many of whom were influenced by the left. By the way, Martin Luther King loved Paul Robeson. Martin Luther King was a socialist. I read his letters recently to his girlfriend, Coretta Scott King, who, and he tells her, oh, by the way, I'm a socialist. This is 1951. And the reason he's telling her this is he's trying to impress her because he knows she's a socialist. Mm -hmm. And he wants to prove to his girlfriend that he's a socialist too. No I mean, faster way to a girl's heart. <laughs> there you go. So, so you see all of this residual leftism that existed, especially in the black community, but it was essentially driven underground because of the witch hunt. And so the above ground leadership could not be assumed by the left in the 1950s or even in the, in the 1960s for a very large part of the time until the very late 60s when the movement explodes into what we then would call the black liberation movement. And there's a new sort of revival of socialism. So for that period of the civil rights revolution, as I call it, it didn't overturn capitalist property relations, but it changed America very profoundly in a way that will never be, even though the right wing wants to make America great again, like make America as an openly white supremacist society again, that won't succeed because of this revolution that happened in consciousness from 1955 to 1970. But at least in that early part, the left is sort of on the sidelines. And if you read the history of Martin Luther King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and SNCC, you can see that the left and leftist advisors are sort of on the sidelines. They're sort of in the back room because they can't come out. 
because that was the reality of America. The left was canceled in America. And then people criticized the left for being small after it's the most physically and brutally repressed political wing on the political spectrum. I mean, the black community, of course, is the most viciously repressed community. But the left as a political formation was basically driven underground and destroyed in the 1950s, but it never lets up. As the left starts to revive again in the 1960s as the black civil rights movement becomes the black liberation movement and as it joins with the anti-war movement, you see then the FBI, the same J. Edgar Hoover, who as a young man launched the Palmer raids in 1918, he's in charge of the COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program that basically went to war against Black America and against the entire left. Yeah, I mean, it is really incredible. You know, when you mentioned Paul Robeson, like, I never heard Paul Robeson's name until I was an adult because despite the fact that he was one of the most popular figures in the world, he's literally written out of American history. Yeah. Like, they disappeared him from American history. Most younger people can't tell you who that is. Like, and it is, it's shocking because when you go back and look at history, like, Paul Robeson was an internationally renowned celebrity. So it really is incredible. And of course, they also write out of history the socialism of people like Martin Luther King. But I want to get to the repression of the black left, because you talk about this sort of resurgence of the left and the black liberation struggle. And this is when it gets really fierce, because as fierce and as violent as arrests and destroying livelihoods are, and of course, there was the execution of the Rosenbergs, but that was a bit of an exception you do actually get assassinations, like with what happened to Fred Hampton. So can you talk a bit about the repression of the black left and just how violent it was? Yeah, and even in 19, in the Montgomery bus boycott, Martin Luther King's home was bombed twice. It was bombed by the fascists, by the KKK. And by the fascists, I also you could also call them the local police department. And Martin Luther King, even though he espoused nonviolence, he also, you know, went to the city and asked to get a gun permit for the security guy who was watching his house when there was this wave of violence against him. And the city said, no, they wouldn't give him a gun permit. This is in the South where, you know, the love of guns is complete. But, you know, you had the many, many assassinations, many killings. I mean, to be part of the freedom rides to take integrated buses into the South and black and white young people did that. People were beaten almost to death. The three civil rights workers who were murdered in Philadelphia, Mississippi in 1964, they were trying to register black people to vote. I mean, you talk about the attack on black voting rights now, which is in you know high season again. The struggle to, to deprive black people of the vote was met with the fiercest violence. And so the liberal left or the socialist left or the left in general had to, if it wanted to do anything, especially in the South against the apartheid police state, fascist state that existed in the South, it had to put its life on the line. Medgar Evers, assassinated. There were black leaders who were in North Carolina, in the deacons of defense, who were trying to protect their communities against the Klan. They were driven out of the country. They had to take refuge in Cuba and in China in the early 19, late 1950s, early 1960s. In 1965, of course, well, let's talk about the 1963 March on Washington. You know, let's talk about that compared to, say, January 6th, 
2021. There was a march on Washington. It was going to be peaceful. It was going to be led by pacifists. It was going to be led by Dr. Martin Luther King, right? The famous, I have a dream speech. Well, the U.S. military was completely mobilized in preparation for the march on Washington. The U.S. military was completely mobilized. Seven to 8,000 National Guard supplemented by military were surrounding the March on Washington. We see all those pictures about King saying, one day my children's will be judged by their character rather than their color of their skin. And it's supposed to be like this beautiful moment. Well, in response, the Kennedy administration completely mobilized the military because they were ready to suppress the March on Washington. And they were completely alarmed over its dangerous prospects. Compare that to, say, January 6th, where the National Guard, even when the Capitol was completely occupied, was still not called out. So violence and repression was something the black community at all levels, whether people said explicitly they were socialists or not, had to contend with. In 1964, there were uprisings in Rochester, New York, where I'm from, and also in Harlem. I mean, the National Guard and military came out, martial law, people were killed. Lots of people were killed. And then Malcolm X is assassinated in 1965. In 1965 and 66 and 67, the civil rights movement really has moved from the South to the North. It's not gone from the South, but the North starts to become dominant. And there, there's the Watts Rebellion in 1965 in Los Angeles. In 1967, what was called the Long Hot Summer, where there were rebellions, massive rebellions, insurrections of, in the black community in Newark, in Detroit, in many, many cities, like 25 cities in 1967. During that entire time, the FBI was at war against black organizations of all types. It was at war against Martin Luther King, which we know. We know how the FBI targeted him and named him as the most dangerous man in America because he could actually, they thought, organize the black masses. We know that he was targeted, especially for repression, after his speech on April 4th, 1967 at Riverside Church, one year to the day when he was assassinated, when he came out openly against the war in Vietnam. And Dr. King would undoubtedly have been the leader of not only a civil rights movement, but an anti-war movement. There's predominantly black movement and predominantly white movement would have been fused together under black leadership but he was killed, he's assassinated the next year, April 4th, 1968. And during that entire time, starting in 1966, when the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is formed, and it's not just the Panthers, it's all over the country. It's in Detroit, it's in Philadelphia. The repression against black organizations, African-American groups and black liberation movement was fierce. And we didn't know what its name was. It was called COINTELPRO. We found that out later in the church committees hearings in the 1970s about FBI abuse. But 28 Panther leaders were killed. 28 Black Panthers were killed. There were shootouts at the Black Panther Party offices all over the country. And by shootouts, I mean the police coming and shooting into the offices or racist vigilantes tied to the cops shooting at Panther offices. You go to D.C., Panthers offices shot up. Philadelphia shot up. Frank Rizzo, the cop, the police chief in charge of Philadelphia, takes all the Black Panthers out, strips them naked, and brings in the media 
to be able to line them up naked and stood up against the wall. That's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the city where Mumia is from. That was all during that same time period. And the COINTELPRO was designed to destroy the Black Panther Party. Huey Newton was in prison by 1968. That was a trumped up charge. He was finally acquitted. When Huey got out, the Panthers organized what was called the Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention, calling for a new constitution that wasn't a racist constitution. They had one meeting in Philadelphia, and the second meeting was in Washington in 1970. And I was at that meeting, actually. It was supposed to be at Howard University, but Howard University shut it down. Howard University, of course, a black university, shut it down the night before the the conference, the Constitutional Convention was supposed to start because of FBI pressure. That came out later. It was all FBI pressure on Howard. So the Congress was on the streets of Georgia Avenue in Washington, D.C. 5,000 people were there to try to participate in a lawful activity by the Panthers, but they couldn't even meet. And during that whole time, fights started to break out, and there was an obvious effort for disruption. That was the first time Huey was speaking, I think, publicly when he got out of prison. Before that, Fred Hampton is assassinated on December 4th, 1969, the year before. Now, Fred Hampton, the execution of Fred Hampton is really something everybody needs to read about and look at and try to read the original. I forgot the name of the book on the killing of Fred Hampton by a lawyer who's a longtime progressive lawyer in Chicago. I'm not remembering his name. My apologies for that. But Fred's assassination is amazing because this was a joint operation between the FBI and the Chicago police. So he's 21 years old. He's the chairman of the Black Panther Party. Earlier, he had been a leader of the, I believe, the NAACP in the state of Illinois when he was like 16 or 17. Fred Hampton is like a remarkable leader because not only is he 21, but he's got the respect of people in the black community, among black youth, among progressive whites, among the Latinos. And he announces the beginning of what he called the Rainbow Coalition. Later, Jesse Jackson adopts that concept and that program of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition when he ran for office in 1984 and 1988 in the Democratic Party primaries and got a lot of support with that. But it was Fred Hampton, who was a 20 and 21 year old and who was a leader in the black community building a rainbow coalition. And his argument was, we're gonna build a black, brown, white, yellow, red coalition. In other words, Asian, Native American, Latinos, black people and white and progressive whites for a struggle against capitalism. So it's a black-led rainbow coalition, and they kill him. I mean, he's asleep in his bed. The Chicago police come in. They have an informer inside. They know exactly what's happening. He and his wife, who's pregnant with their son, they're lying in bed together, and they storm up into the apartment and boom, 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 and execute him. And then at the time, on every network, Rania, every network, it was like there was a shootout at the Black Panther Party office in Chicago. And then it's the police getting up and talking about how they were being shot at by the Panthers and by Fred Hampton. But the police heroically defended themselves. And in the shootout, Fred Hampton was found dead. No, this was a planned operation by the federal government to kill a 21-year-old man while he was sleeping with his pregnant wife in their apartment in Chicago because Fred Hampton represented 
the thing that J. Edgar Hoover always insisted was that the black masses could never have their own messiah. You know, that was the argument. That's why the FBI killed, or we can't prove it, but participated in or led the killing of Fred Hampton and earlier Medgar Evers, but also earlier Malcolm X. So you have the killing of Medgar Evers, the assassination of Malcolm X, the killing of Martin Luther King, the imprisonment of the Panthers, the execution of Fred Hampton, the killing of 28 Panther leaders, like the all-out war that was waged by the U.S. government against the Black civil rights and liberation movement. And, you know, the reason affirmative action was adopted, the reason there were civil rights, the reason there were voting rights, was that in spite of this repression, the uprising of Black America was so profound that the ruling class, the racist ruling class that had maintained slavery and apartheid for 350 years, finally had to make some modest concessions. And what we see now and what we saw after that movement subsided in the 1970s was that step by step, the ultra right wing of the capitalist ruling class is attempting to take back all of the achievements that the working class and the black community and women and gay people have achieved since the 1930s. And so step by step, you see the right wing packing the federal courts, stacking the courts. Really, the reason we have this ultra right Supreme Court, that was a long plan for operation by the Federalist Society and the ultra right. And they want to use institutions like the Supreme Court, where people are unelected, or the Federal Reserve Bank, where the bankers are unelected, or state legislatures, which are stacked with right-wingers because of gerrymandering, or if they can succeed with the reorganization of the federal government by depriving Black people of voting rights, or reinterpreting the Constitution so that state legislatures, instead of the popular vote in a state, can pick who the electors will be, which is also on the agenda now and will come up on the Supreme Court in the Moore versus Harper case coming up in the next term of the Supreme Court. The effort by the right wing ever since the black and left movement subsided in the early 1970s has been to reverse all of the achievements that were won in the 30s, the 50s and the 60s. And, you know, I think as a as a consequence of the fall of the Soviet Union, which, of course, is not just repression, but the communist and socialist left became disoriented when the socialist bloc fell apart. And so for two generations, activism didn't stop, but it wasn't led by the left. It was led by anarchism or various forms of liberalism or what we might call postmodern politics, not traditional left Marxist politics. And it's only in the last few years where we see the revival once again after this kind of two-generation skip where the left is growing again. So Party for Socialism and Liberation, growing. I'm sure other socialist parties and Marxist parties growing right now because, you know, as much as the left is repressed, the bottom line is Marxism is the idea that society can be made for the majority, that the society can be for the people, for the working people, the working families, the majority of the population, not for the 1%. And so as class contradictions and other social and political and environmental contradictions accumulate, people gravitate into activism. And when you're an activist against capitalism and you think like, okay, I hate capitalism. I hate what it's doing to workers. I hate income inequality. I hate racism. I hate all this bigotry. I hate the fact that it's destroying the environment. 
But what do we, what's the alternative? Well, once you get to that point, there's only really one alternative. Property and society will either be held privately by capitalists or it will become public property and able thus to be democratically governed in a society based on socialism. So as activism grows because of class contradictions and other contradictions, the left revives in spite of the repression. And that's what we're witnessing right now. And I do want to get to that because we are witnessing that right now. I do think there are some forces trying to prevent that. Of course, there's always forces trying to prevent that. I do want to pivot here a bit to, I don't know how much this has to do with the repression, the historical repression we just talked about. I'm sure it does play a role. But, you know, we know that during this Vietnam War era, there was this massive opposition to the Vietnam War eventually that led to, I don't know if it led to the end of the war. It certainly played a role in helping lead to the end of the war. That said, we get to the 90s, right? Where, you know, you do have this first war on Iraq and you actually, you were personally involved in organizing against that first war on Iraq. And you actually did this fantastic series on the socialist program about the divisions over how to oppose that war and even whether to oppose it at all. You know, what should be the role of sanctions? Should we be supporting sanctions? Should we not be supporting sanctions? And, you know, just the sort of general struggles inside the left during the first war on Iraq. And I think a lot of those struggles, those sort of inter-left arguments were replicated during the war on Yugoslavia, to some degree during the second war on Iraq in 2003, then again over Libya and Syria in 2011 and onward, and maybe a bit now during you know this war on U- in Ukraine, though I think interestingly, the divisions over the war in Ukraine are not as bad at least as the divisions were in the ones I experienced in the wars on Syria and Libya. But can you maybe walk us through how those divisions played out, starting with the first war on Iraq? Because you were and have always been very deeply involved in anti-war activism. So you've had a front row seat to that. Yes. And I wasn't always sitting. I was marching. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just for context, I went to Iraq right before the start of the war, and I took a delegation with Muhammad Ali and his friends and closest folks with him. And we went and we were trying to organize to stop the war before it started. And, you know, as a consequence of that trip and other activities, even before the January, the start of the war in January 1990, there was growing anti-war opposition. And at first it was very small. I mean, the context was Iraq invaded Kuwait, August 2nd, 1990. Uh, That was after a complicated inter-Arab dispute. I don't think we need to go into it. But as a consequence of the fact that Iraq invaded Kuwait, and then the U.S. used that as a pretext to send a half a million troops to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, and then to invade Kuwait and Iraq, there was a growing sense that the war was coming. So a few of us, I was working out of Ramsey Clark's office at that time. We had been organizing against the U.S. invasion of Panama that happened in December, 1989, we started having protests. And at first they were small. Then we got, a th- we got about 2000 people came out for a meeting at Cooper Union. And Cooper Union only holds 900. So 2000 people came out and a lot of them just were out on the sidewalk. And it was clear that a lot of people were afraid of an, a new war. So as we started building for anti-war protests and we took Ali to Iraq and tried to build public consciousness, The movement actually, and this was right at the same time 
that the Soviet Union is collapsing, the socialist camp is breaking up. So there's a lot of schisms and divisions and confusion inside the left. Well, a division happened at the beginning of the Iraq war and the anti-war movement split into two parts. And one part, the part I was helping to organize, held a demonstration on January 19th, 1990. And on January 19th, and we had you know 75,000 people. And the very next week, another demonstration took place that was larger. It was about 150,000 people, maybe twice as big. And the division was over what the slogans were going to be for the anti-war demonstrations. And our slogan was, stop the war before it starts. And the other coalition, again, which was larger, and which included very formidable parts of the left who had been, some of whom had been associated with socialism and communism, marched under the banner, sanctions, not war. And people were like, what? They were demanding sanctions? We're like, yes. The anti-war movement, the dominant part of the anti-war movement, the majority, we were a substantial minority, but the people who marched the next week, they marched under American flags. It wasn't hammers and sickles. It wasn't left-wing flags. They had banners, painted banners and American flags chanting sanctions, not war. And that was a really, really important moment for the U.S. left because our argument, of course, was like, sanctions are war, and the U.S. had already sanctioned Iraq, and we could see even, and as all of the U.S. military leadership later admitted, the point of bombing downtown Baghdad and bombing the water system and bombing the sewage system and destroying the infrastructure in Iraq was to supplement the strength, the impact of sanctions. Because if you deprive people of the things needed to maintain a modern society by sanctions, and then you bomb them, and then they can't rebuild them. And as a consequence, Iraq at the end of the war couldn't rebuild, and they were sanctioned, so they couldn't import spare parts, new infrastructure. They couldn't import anything. Sanctions lasted all the way up until March 19, 2003, when the U.S. actually invaded again. And the U.N. said during that time, about 5,000 Iraqis died each month. 5,000. And most of them were babies. I went to Iraq. I was in the emergency rooms. I was sitting with mothers with their little shriveled up babies who were literally dying as we spoke to them. And they were dying from things like diarrhea, completely treatable problems. They were drinking unsafe, impure water, getting diarrhea and dying. And there was no medicine. And that was sanctions. That was a deliberate sort of slow motion genocide against a, a helpless people, because who do sanctions really kill? They kill the babies and they kill their grandparents. They kill the weakest, most vulnerable parts of society. And this was a deliberate plan. Now, later in the 1997, 1998, we started bringing large amounts of medicine. We carried out international acts of civil disobedience against the sanctions. And some of the same leftists who were chanting sanctions, not war, started also organizing anti-sanctioned medical brigades to Iraq. And I was like, well, that's good. But... but let's not forget that you were demanding sanctions, not war. Now, why would leftists in the United States, in the center of American imperialism, demand sanctions? Now, at this point, it seems ludicrous because sanctions have become the weapon of choice for American imperialism. That way you can kill all these people silently without the drama of bombs bursting. 
And that way you don't have an anti-war movement. Kind of just make all the suffering somewhere else. Well, that was because they were trying to placate bourgeois public opinion in the United States. And here was the logic. Saddam and Iraq did invade Kuwait. They were the aggressors, right? So if you're taking the position that you're against the war in Iraq, but you don't want to support Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, and you're getting on CBS or CNN, and all of us who were organizers at that time, we could get on mainstream media. We were going on mainstream media, and they would stick the microphone in front of you, and they'd say, well, look, you say you don't want an American war against Iraq, but do you support Iraq's invasion of Kuwait? Now, there's two ways you can answer that question. You could say, yes, we oppose Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. We condemn Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. To which the next question is on CNN or NBC, okay, you're not for an American war against Iraq, but you do condemn Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. So what are you for if you're not for war? So sanctions became the easy answer. They would be the nonviolent way of showing that you opposed Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and you were still opposed to a US war against Iraq. And for those of us who said, as we said, when we were on TV, the U.S. isn't going to war because of Kuwait. The U.S. doesn't give a damn about Kuwaitis. They don't give a damn about Palestinians. They don't give a damn about Muslims. They don't give a damn about Arabs. If the U.S. goes to war in Iraq against Iraq, it's because the U.S. imperialism has its own agenda in the Middle East. And so we're not for sanctions or a military operation because those are just two sides of the same military operation against an oppressed people. You don't have to be a stooge of Saddam Hussein or an apologist for the invasion of Kuwait, but you can tell the truth to the American people that war had nothing to do about Kuwait. The U.S., I mean, Saddam would have negotiated in a minute if there was real negotiations to have prevented that war, but the U.S. didn't want negotiations. The U.S. wanted to go to war because the Soviet Union was self-destructing Iraq and Syria and the other Soviet allies in the Middle East, the U.S. thought they could dominate and smash those anti-colonial governments. They wanted the war for their own purpose. So in the name of appeasing bourgeois public opinion and being anti-war, they said, let's go for sanctions. Nowadays, nobody would do that, right? Because it's kind of obvious now sanctions are a war. Then the next war, though, that happens, the real major war, is a war against the government of Yugoslavia. Milosevic, who was the leader of Yugoslavia, and Yugoslavia had six republics, a multinational socialist republic. It was the only government in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union that retained a socialist government. So the US and Germany and Britain and France went to war against Yugoslavia, and they dismembered it using national minority issues. America finally suddenly loved Muslims, you know, as long as, <laughs> right. they were, as long as they were in Bosnia. Well, to be fair, they loved them in the 80s in Afghanistan as um, well. So. That's right. They <laughs> loved them again. The Muslims were in favor again. The Kosovo Muslims and the, the Afghan Muslims. So, so in 1999, Bill Clinton is the president and all the governments in Europe are social democratic governments. They're not right-wing governments. They're social democratic imperialist governments. And they go to war to destroy the last remaining socialist government in Europe. 
And the United States, again, has to have a pretext. So they say, well, Milosevic is mistreating Muslims in Kosovo. They had what they called the Ramboye Accords, where they insisted that if Milosevic wanted to prevent war, he had to sign on the dotted line to have a peace agreement that would basically separate Kosovo from Serbia, basically make Kosovo a NATO colony, and insist that all of Yugoslavia could be overrun by NATO military operations and that Yugoslavia would pay for it. And of course, Milosevic said no, because no government could say yes to that. And then they said, see, Milosevic is a hardliner, and they started the war against Yugoslavia. And between March and June 3rd, 1999, NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on Yugoslavia, 28,000 bombs on that small country, until finally Milosevic said uncle and Kosovo was taken over by NATO. During that entire time, because the government of the United States was a democratic government, and the governments in Europe were social democratic governments. They're still imperialist governments, but they're either liberal or social democratic imperialists. A big part of the left said, oh, well, they're fighting against Milosevic's dictatorship. Again, you don't have to love Milosevic or think everything is wonderful in Yugoslavia. A civil war was going on. But again, imperialism doesn't go to war in Yugoslavia or Iraq, or Afghanistan, or anywhere, because it cares about people. Those arguments are public rationales designed to justify imperialist invasions or imperialist sanctions. And so the left in America split over the issue of, are you going to be an anti-war movement that's, quote, for peace because peace is the absence of war, or are you going to be an anti-war movement because not only are you for peace, but war is not simply the absence of peace. War is injustice. War is imperialism. War is a form of maintaining colonialism and semi-colonialism. Because if you're that kind of anti-war movement, you have to premise your anti-war organizing and your educational materials and your agitational materials on the principles of anti-imperialism, not simply being anti-war. So the anti-war movement divided between an anti-imperialist anti-war movement and basically, I, I don't want to call them pro-imperialist because I know in their brains, people didn't think they were imperialists. But when you're calling on an imperialist country to impose sanctions on Iraq, that's an imperialist position. Objectively speaking, you're calling on imperialism to impose genocidal type economic strangulation against an oppressed people. And it's not because Saddam Hussein is worse than the Saudis or worse than the Israelis. It was only because the U.S. had decided they wanted to go to war in the Middle East to get the ball rolling in the post-Soviet era to wipe out all of the anti-colonial governments, which, of course, they eventually engaged in that anyway. Yeah, they did. I mean, it was one after another, after another, after another. And in each case, it was the same exact script with a you know, few minor adjustments. Yeah. And now, you know, I do think that we've kind of reached a point where maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but I'm rarely optimistic. I really do feel we're in a different moment now where I do see a lot of the different factions of the left recognizing, for example, at least in the United States, I'm not talking about Europe because that's like a totally different situation. But at least with the war in Ukraine, I do see 
most segments of the left acknowledging the reasons for this war and not necessarily supportive of sanctions. And I do think that that's an important distinction to like highlight in this case than something we you know what we saw 20 years ago or even 10 years ago in the case of Syria. But I do see people coming around on the issues of Syria, recognizing, okay, like Libya, even people who were for the war in Libya, recognizing Libya didn't turn out the way it should have. And I think it's interesting that I see that happening on the American left, not necessarily the UK left, and again, certainly not the European left. That said, I do want to kind of move to another issue I'd like to get your take on, and that is what I see happening today that I do think is kind of disturbing. So let me let me start it here, because I know I'm fast-forwarding a bit, but let's move to sort of the Bernie Sanders era. Because there was so much excitement with the rise of Bernie Sanders and his candidacy brought together all these factions of the left that are usually pretty opposed to each other and fighting with each other. But of course, you know, there was no way that the very right-wing American establishment was going to let even this kind of middle sort of center-left figure like Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders isn't really a leftist. I mean, he's kind of like the social democrat of the sort of European style that you're talking about, maybe a little bit more left than that. But he certainly isn't some, like, raging socialist or anti-imperialist. But, you know, in the American context, he's quite left. And his candidacy did bring together these different factions that I'm talking about, but no one was going to let him ascend to the White House. And after he failed in 2016, failed again in 2020, all of these different factions of the left and these different progressives who supported him, I think, were kind of lost. And then in sort of in many ways began to turn on each other. So that's been a problem. But also something else happened. And that's that, you know, starting in, I think, 2016 and then after with the rise of Trump, you did have this attempt by the far right to co-opt disgruntled Bernie Sanders supporters. You know, Steve Bannon even said that this was a goal of his and of his movement. And since then, we've seen a lot of attempts to do just that, particularly with like messaging that states that you'll hear things like, oh, there's no left and right. There's just like ruling elites and the rest of us. And the left and the right have to unite, right? Like those distinctions don't matter anymore. It's the sort of thing I think that we see from self-proclaimed Christian nationalist Marjorie Taylor Greene. She calls herself that, by the way a Christian nationalist, but she'll try to like appeal to the left by tweeting about Julian Assange. You know, recently her whole defund the FBI thing that she seems to have very quickly abandoned. Anyways, the reason I raise that is because I think that you're probably the perfect person to address this. You know, what does it mean for those who are maybe confused, especially for younger people who are watching this happen? And maybe they do think that it is true. Marjorie Taylor Greene is talking about Julian Assange and like AOC isn't, right? People do see that and they say that. So Brian, I know this is hard to answer in you know a short amount of time, but what does it mean to be a leftist? And how should the left engage with the right, if at all? Is there ever an appropriate time to make alliances with the right, even if the right is being opportunistic? And how can the left prevent being co-opted by those with a nasty agenda, people like Steve Bannon, people like Peter Thiel, who is this billionaire who is willing to, you know, throw money at anything if it means co-opting, again, that sort of disgruntled Bernie Sanders supporter. Well, we should never forget that the Nazis called themselves the National Socialist Party, right? Because that was precisely the effort by the right 
to conquer sections of the progressive socialist working class and middle class and bring them into a fascist movement. And in order to do that, if you read Nazi propaganda from 1928 or 29, it's against the banks and against the capitalists and against the imperialists. And it's very, you know, radical left sounding, but they're fascists. So, you know, just let's remember what happened in Germany. As soon as the fascists came to power, the left went to concentration camps or was killed. Not to mention the Jews, not to mention gay people, not to mention the Roma people, not to mention the extinguishing of the unions. The right is the enemy of the labor movement, of the organized labor movement. The right will never come out really, unless it's an openly racist union that is fighting like to prevent black people from like a craft union. Right, yeah. But, yeah. but that's, but the labor <laughs> like movement- Like the police union, police yeah. unions come to mind, yeah. But you know, the right is the enemy of the left. And also I think in the United States, because racists, white supremacists call for the freedom of Julian Assange, same with Tucker Carlson. You know, if any of these right-wing, really super reactionary right-wing fascist or semi-fascist type people say something progressive and the left says, oh, look, they said something that we agree with and now we're gonna build a bond with them. What does it mean to build a bond with white supremacists? It means to forego the alliance between the left and black America. And what is the dynamic force of change throughout history in the United States? It was the struggle first and foremost of black America. Black America has been the trigger for all other social movements in fact. And you can't, if you're white or not black, talk about building black and white unity or black, white, Latino, native, Asian unity against the system. And at the same time say, well, but some of our friends are really white supremacists because some of our white supremacist friends think Julian Assange should go free. Or some of our white supremacist friends like Tucker Carlson who is at war against immigrant families coming from Latin America, that he's our friend because he spoke out against this or that abusive characteristic feature of the FBI. No, if you wanna make change in America, you have to realize that the struggle must have at its center the fight against racism. The fight against racism is the key element for the rest of the political class struggle in America. And all of these people who are saying, oh, there's, we can have left-right unity, they don't give a damn about the unity between white people and black people against a racist, white supremacist, imperialist capitalist system, because if you did, you wouldn't choose a handful of fascist demagogues against an alliance with black America. And that's the cutting edge in the United States. The struggle against racism and white supremacy is always at the very center. And the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene or Tucker Carlson or whoever cares about this or that thing that coincides with a leftist position, we absolutely can't unite with them. I think that this is, a, you know, it happened in Nazi Germany, by the way. The Nazis were, as they took power, they were able to consolidate a section of the proletariat in Germany that had been with the Communist Party. Wow. 
They did. There was a crossover. Hitler came to power and using militarization and regimentation, they created more of a full employment economy when there had been devastating unemployment when the Communist Party got strong. So a section of the proletariat said, well, we didn't like Hitler before, but we have jobs now. You know, like, what are we fighting for? What are we, as the left, what are we fighting for? I mean, the reason we have war is because of capitalism. The reason we have environmental destruction is because of capitalism. The reason a big part of the population in the world is living in absolute destitution in spite of the advanced means of production is because of capitalism. I mean, the problem here is the capitalist system. If you're a left, but all you can do is form conjunctural alliances with people who have positions that coincide with your position on this or that issue and don't have the rudder of uh, working class unity against capitalism, you'll end up in the right. The leftists who are pretending, who are coddling the right are on their way to becoming the right, or they're on their way to becoming completely irrelevant or both. So I believe that this is a point of demarcation that we have to be very, very strong about. Temporary alliances are possible with all kinds of people, but a temporary alliance with white supremacists? No, we can never make a temporary alliance with white supremacists on any issue because the biggest problem in America is white supremacy. And I'm saying that as a white person trying to build a left that forges an effective multinational unity without multinational unity, including with black leadership at its very center, there won't be progressive change in America. And we're in, I would say we're in a do or die stage in American history. I mean, you look at the US is preparing for major power conflict with Russia and China. The U.S. isn't doing a damn thing about climate change, even though the writing is on the wall. You have, you know, automation coming in where corporate capitalists can say, oh, we're going to get rid of 50 percent of the workforce in the next five years because we're going to replace you with automated technologies. Like these are existential, multiplying, cascading crises, all of which have their roots in capitalism. So if you want to be for this or that issue, but not be against the capitalist system and not be fighting for its only alternative, which is socialism, you're a leftist without a rudder. And yes, you can make an alliance with a right winger, but you do it by sacrificing your black brothers and sisters and comrades in the black community as a whole. And I consider that to be an unforgivable sin. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, there is this conflation between the identity politics that's espoused by neoliberalism, right? Like the surface level shallow identity politics of, you know, if we just put a few black faces in high places, we don't have to do anything else institutionally to fix anything. There's a conflation between that and what you're talking about by people who I don't think know very much because they see Hillary Clinton during the 2016 campaign, like attacking Bernie Sanders as a sexist and a racist based on like Complete BS, and we don't have to rehash all that, but using that sort of like neoliberal, shallow identity politics. Or we'll see people in positions of power in, for example, the White House, you know, what's her name? Jen Psaki, the former White House press secretary, would, you know, invoke sexism if anybody challenged her. Like these kinds of silly things, conflating that with actually, no, we should be caring about issues 
of race and gender. And, you know, we should be caring about sexism. These are like essential to opposing capitalism. It just seems like there's a bit of a reaction to that. And there's, of course, people who are also conflating liberalism with leftism all the time now, which is super upsetting. You see that a lot. I don't need to name names, but it's very irritating because leftists are obviously very offended by being compared. And factionalism that I've seen occur in certain segments of the left over the past couple of years has been the issue of COVID. Um, And it's particular to the United States because Mm -hmm. maybe I'm wrong to say this, but I really don't see this happening in other countries. This hasn't been a fault line. I don't even know if it's really been a fault line on the left in Europe or it's certainly not in the Middle East. I don't think it has been in Latin America, but in the U.S. in particular— the issue of COVID, the issue of vaccines, the issue of mandates, the issue of just basic public health measures have caused people to kind of go down this reactionary rabbit hole, which is also quite unfortunate. And I'm just curious to get your take on why you think that is. Is it because like in the U.S., we tend to kind of be indoctrinated into a kind of libertarianism, whether we like it or not? And so we think like any public health measure is just some sort of violation of our liberty Or is it more than that? Like, what do you think is going on with that? Why did COVID become this big problem on the left where people really split and almost like ran to the right? There's a couple of different important elements in it. The population historically in the United States was very worried and hesitant about vaccines. You know, my grandmother had smallpox. Well, smallpox, you know, went away. I mean, it was a devastating disease. It went away because of vaccines, but a big part of the population didn't want to get vaccinated. The last smallpox outbreak was in Boston, like in 1904, 1905. And the police actually went door to door and subdued people and vaccinated them. So it was like there was this huge split in the population. Then when I was a kid and we were getting rid of polio through vaccination, the government created something called the March of Dimes to make it look like it wasn't the government that was going to vaccinate you that it was this nonprofit organization. That was a desire to overcome vaccine hesitancy because it exists in the, in the society. And the hesitancy is because one, people don't know if they can trust the government. The government is like these far distant bureaucrats. The impact of capitalist pharmaceutical companies and their profit you know, making as the sole sort of priority that they have increases skepticism and fear in the black community, the fact that black Americans were used as for medical experimentation deliberately, like the Tuskegee experiment, where black men had syphilis and they, they thought they were being treated and the government didn't treat them because they wanted to use them as guinea pigs. You know, there's all kind of sort of understandable historical reasons for it. But what we have now is that the the right wing sort of cherry picks issues that there's a possible way to create public opinion around and mobilize support. Like the reason the right wing focused on abortion after the black civil rights movement created all of this social change was the black civil rights movement was too strong. They couldn't frontally assault black America. So abortion, I mean, nobody cared about abortion, including the right wing, including the church people, the evangelical people, only the Catholic church did. But the right wing seized on abortion and used the single issue because it could read skepticism and it was a moral issue and an you know, ethical issue and it's about life. And you know, it was sort of a device to mobilize. And that's what happened with COVID. The right wing 
which has gotten much stronger in the last few years during the once Trump was elected, they seized on COVID as a way to preach and build animosity and hostility towards government. Now, the government is the target of the right wing for a lot of reasons, because the government was the medium through which social programs and social reforms and political reforms were adopted in the 1930s and especially in the 1950s and 60s. So the right always rails against big government, right? Against big government, against big government, meaning government. And it's because the government is seen as a foreign force imposing unwanted social and political reforms on reactionary parts of the population. So COVID was kind of a perfect way to take the already existing hesitancy or skepticism about vaccine and go all the way with it and create this conspiracy. Like the way QAnon as a conspiracy really made a big difference or Trump's whole thing about how he wasn't elected, that there's there's these sinister centralized government forces that are organizing pedophilia rings and, you know, like this fear and hatred, which was very common, by the way, in Nazi Germany before the Nazis took power. The Nazis promoted this kind of widespread conspiracy thinking as an agitational technique to recruit. So the right wing started doing that with COVID. And then you have, I would say, some influencers in the so-called left who, because they had a lot of people following them on Twitter or other social media, and because they don't have a rudder, they're not really socialists, they're not anti-imperialists, they're conjunctural anti-imperialists, but they're not really political in the sense of having a political worldview. But they could see that Trump and the anti-government and anti-COVID movement was the source of a lot of fundraising by the right wing. And I think they wanted to get in on it. So if you can promote right-left unity against the idea that COVID is real, in other words, right-left unity around COVID denialism, and then cherry pick. And I talked to some of these people individually because I said, you're cherry picking facts and information to breed skepticism and hostility when what we know is that the unvaccinated parts of the population are more likely to die from COVID. So like, why as a progressive person would you want people to not be vaccinated? And I think it was opportunism. I think some of the influencers who I'm speaking of thought they could get money and they could widen their social media support base by feeding into this right-wing led anti-COVID campaign. And I think it's a real disservice. I think it's really pitiful. I think it's unforgivable actually. And I think when you realize that a million Americans have died and, you know, like some people say, oh, it was only obese people. Well, obese people have a right to live. Oh, it's only older people. Well, older people have a right to live. I mean, like the idea that this was like not a big deal, that COVID was nothing. I mean, in all for so you can get more social media followers, I think terrible. It's also like a little bit fascistic, right? Like killed, like let the weak die. Is what you're saying? Yeah, call the herd. Call the herd. I mean, Jesus. And it's also, you know, just real quick, just to speak back, because I think this is a crossover topic, just to speak back to what we were talking about earlier about the issue of the right trying to co-opt the left. I mean, a lot of, like, these people, what they'll do is they'll— 
they'll gravitate towards these like right wing figures, like these, you know, semi-fascist figures who are maybe saying sometimes that they're against this or that war, you know, paying lip service to, oh, like I'm against we shouldn't, you know, before NATO, we should be against it. I mean, that's what Trump said, right? Trump was like essentially saying he was anti-NATO. It's also important to remember these people are still imperialists. Not only do they want to dismantle the American government or any government, and not in like the good way, in the bad way, like they want to dismantle the state, right? They're like anti-state. They want corporations to just run everything. On top of that, domestically, they do want war. They just want war with China. Like, they want to make an alliance with Russia against China. Like, there's different factions of the imperialist ruling class, and they're the ones who want a war with China. And I have yet to see a lot of these people that are, like, allying with those elements of the right that are against the war in Ukraine actually engage with the fact that it's because they want a war with China. Like, I never hear them discuss that. And that's important to—that's really important to keep in mind because—and it reminds me also, Brian, of, like, when I think back to Syria— And, you know, there weren't really leftists in Syria, but there were sort of like progressives and liberals who were anti-Assad, who were like making the argument that it's okay to ally with al-Qaeda because they can help us defeat the regime. And then once we defeat the regime, then we'll have that fight. Okay, but who has all the weapons and who has all the power in that situation? Let's say you did defeat the Assad government. What's left is the the people who have weapons or who get power. There is no left with weapons in Syria. There will just be al-Qaeda. And in all the areas where the government was pushed out, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, in the U.S., if you want to ally with a bunch of fascists because you think that you can take out the imperialists, whatever that means, well, guess who's going to have all the power afterwards? It's not going to be you and the left. It's going to be all those armed people who hate you. They literally say you're the enemy. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene campaigned on shooting socialists. Like she constantly talks about the evil communist left and how they control Democrats and that's her enemy. So she knows who her enemy is. Anyway. Yeah, no, those are excellent points. There's two elements that I think we should emphasize in this. One is that in the 1930s, there was a very strong anti-war sentiment in the United States and it was led by the right. In the 1930s, the the movement against entrance into World War II was a right-wing led movement. So there's this strong strain within ultra-right politics in the United States of being, quote, anti-war. And it was only, it was really only the, the attack on Pearl Harbor that allowed Roosevelt to finally declare war on Japan. And then Germany declared war on the United States, not the other way around. And so one strand is anti-war anti-intervention is also in America conflates with the far right, the fascist right in the 1930s. So there's that tradition or what we learned in school, Republican isolationism. Well, what that meant was don't go to war in Europe when Hitler was on the march across Europe. So, okay. So that's one element. The other element, and when it comes to Syria, and this was true with Libya, I mean, I'm the national coordinator of the Answer Coalition, We organized just as hard against the war in Libya as we did against the war in Iraq. And while we had hundreds of thousands of people marching every month in the lead up to the Iraq war, we had hundreds, not thousands or tens of thousands or not hundreds of thousands. We had hundreds of people only in the run up to the, during the Libya war. And we tried to have anti-war demonstrations against Syria. We did, and we worked just as hard as for the Iraq. And they were in the hundreds, not the thousands. 
And a lot of the people on the left who were against the Iraq war, because that was going to send American soldiers to fight in a foreign war, sort of like Vietnam, where Americans were going to get killed. These people stood on the sidelines on Syria and Libya. And the reason is not only were Americans not being sent to those places, not only was this a proxy war, but the demonization of the target is so complete that in order to be a socialist who still can sort of have some degree of popular support at the beginning of one of these wars, you have to be part of the war hysteria. Like that's the explanation for Bernie and AOC and the folks who really are progressive and liberal. But if you stand up to the empire when the empire really has put its foot down, like what's going on in Ukraine, then you're going to be completely witch hunted and demonized the way the communists were in 1947, 48, 49, where we started this show. So the liberal left stays quiet out of fear or they sort of go along out of fear, right? You know, they don't stand up to it. Well, the left in general has always been impacted by the demonization of the target. And in the case of Syria and Libya, Everybody who I was talking to, they'd say, I'd say, come, there's, the imperialists are trying to overthrow this government in Syria, just like they did in Iraq. And you joined us in all these anti-war protests. And then people would say, well, Assad is killing his own people. Assad is, well, Saddam killed his own people too. Like, I mean, the demonization is so complete that in order to not look like you're a witch during the middle of a witch hunt, you become part of the witch hunt or you just stay silent. So it was very hard for us to say the U.S. is going to war in Libya, not because it's you know, wanting to protect civilians. They're trying to take over the country in Africa, which has the largest oil reserves. They're going to war in Syria. They want to make Syria a colony again. Syria used to be a colony. Libya was a colony. Iraq was a colony. The colonizers don't give a damn about the political you know, orientation of Gaddafi or Assad or Saddam Hussein. They just want control. They were evicted from those countries by anti-colonial struggles. And it's just like the slave owners after the end of the civil war in the United States. They didn't reconcile themselves to the defeat. They wanted their property back. They wanted their plantations back and they got them back. They were no longer called, you know, slave plantations. They used sharecropping. They used the black codes, they used other means, but it's the same ruling class with its own predatory imperial or capitalist interests. And so again, to go back to how the left should view these things, instead of reacting to the conjuncture, like is Saddam bad? Is Gaddafi bad? Is Assad bad? Like what about imperialism? What's driving US foreign policy? US foreign policy, like its domestic policy is driven by the needs of the capitalist class and they're a predatory class and the left should oppose them, not because we love their targets, but because we oppose imperialism, which is the enemy of humanity. And I think this is the rudder that is missing in some of the other sort of conjunctural and semi-superficial left politics. You can't be a leftist really, you can't be a serious leftist without study, without principles, without values, and without a worldview that helps you understand what may seem to be complicated you know, issues at the moment, 
but are really not that complicated when you can get back to what the core issues are that are driving society into the ditch. And on that note, I mean, to end on here, you know, people are always asking me, and I never know what to say because I'm not involved in organizing, but they're always asking, so what do I do? So what do I do? Because like everything in the U.S. feels so isolating and alienating. Where do I go? What do I join if I actually want to do something and get offline? Because so much of the time, like the conversations that we're having in the media are based on what people are tweeting or what like YouTube personalities are arguing with each other that day. But those people don't actually matter in the real world for the most part. In the real world, most average people aren't talking about what this or that person is saying about the other person on YouTube and what, you know, TYT said about this person from this other outlet on Twitter. So what should people do? Well, I believe that people should become one, very, very involved, help build an organic community of resistance where you are or join one, join organizations that seem to be consistent, that have values that you can tell they're not, you know, fly by night or start an organization help build alternative media because we are in a battle of ideas against the propaganda of the imperialists. And the dominant struggle really is the battle of ideas. The capitalists are a small part of society, but they have a dominant influence because they control the media. So we're building alternative media like your show, my program, the socialist program, like Breakthrough News, like other alternative media. In 2004, I mean, I've been a Marxist and a part of a Marxist organization since I was 18 years old. So that was a while ago. And in 2004, I helped start another one called the Party for Socialism and Liberation. So we're 18 years old. We've existed for 18 years. We have an organized presence in 93 cities. We're recruiting people. We're training people, helping them to get the skills as individuals and as groups. I believe ultimately that without organization, we can't win. You know, we've seen mass movements, like many of them in the last 20 years, the anti-globalization movement, the anti-war movement, the immigration rights movement, the Occupy movement, Black Lives Matter movement, the movement around Bernie, which was in many ways a movement, even though it was around him and his campaign. It had the elements of a movement of tens of millions of young people who were learning about and embracing socialism and wanting to have social change. Lots of movements, but the movements go up and down. The national uprising against racism after George Floyd's murder. I mean, 35 million people came into the street. Each of these movements shows people want change. They really desperately want change. But when a movement subsides, which all movements do, spontaneous movements, there has to be a connection between one movement and the next movement. That connector is organization where we don't have to start from scratch each time the next movement of possibility and change opens. We have a group of people who have become trained organizers, who've learned the lessons, they learn the pros and cons of what just happened. In a way, they become the sort of um, the institutional memory of a movement so that it's not starting from scratch, like just being born for the first time. And so I believe organization is the key, but it can't be simply organization. It has to be an organization with a worldview with principles, with values. And also, I think it's not just about the political program. Do you like working with the people? Are the people you're working with people who you feel are your comrades and you can trust? Or can you build an organization like that? In my mind, that's very, very important because if you're a long-term leftist, if you're a real revolutionary, if you're in this for the long haul, there's gonna be ups and downs. 
And you have to be in a community of people and in an organization of people where you feel you can support them, they can support you, we can support our larger community. So all of these different elements, I think, are really crucial. But at its core, there has to be organization. Brian, thank you so much for spending more than an hour with me breaking all this down. My pleasure. Really happy to do it. Thank you, Rania. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.